And when you sing that song, you're actually singing his personal testimony. Uh, when he was young, his father passed away and his mom was unable to control him. And so she sent him away to a kind of boarding school. And while he was away, he fell into drunkenness and gang activity. And in the midst of that, the, and the friendships that he had developed, he found himself with some of his buddies, probably on an alcoholic binge, spending time with a fortune teller, giving her a hard time and harassing her as she was trying to give them their fortune. And it was in that moment that it occurred to him that he had heard of some evangelistic meetings taking place in town, so maybe they should go there next. <clears throat> Who knows what the purpose of their desire to be there was, but the preacher they encountered was George Whitfield. And under his teaching, he started doing some thinking. And roughly three years later, he would commit himself to Jesus Christ as his Lord. And so he, he is the one that was rescued by God when wandering from the fold. He's the one who knows what it feels like to be prone to that wandering. So maybe next time, if you hadn't heard that story before, as you sing it, you're, you're, you're singing the rich, personal words of a man who knew exactly what he was writing about. And he's a testament to many of the things that we'll discuss this morning. We're going to keep things rel <clears throat> relatively simple, but probably also do something a little bit different. We're going to spend a lot of time reading the Bible today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read the entirety of Daniel chapters 1, 3, and 6 by the time that we're done. And I know that these stories are familiar to many of you in the room, and certainly our graduates are probably no exception to that. Uh, but I think that there, there's some takeaways here that are critical for our time. The question this morning is, what can we learn about navigating hostile territory from the life of Daniel? And that includes the friends that he had with him during some of these seasons of his life. Because make no mistake, hostile territory is what we're living in today. And the hostility towards the Christian faith is nothing new, as we'll read in this book. They knew what it was like to live in the midst of hostility towards their faith. There's nothing new for God's people. And so in that respect, things haven't changed very much. The context has, the names of the people groups have, but the age-old battle of being a Christ follower, a child of God in the midst of hostile territory is nothing new. So I think there's takeaways here. Even though this is an ancient story, I think it has modern implications. And I also want to put all my cards on the table, so to speak. I spent about the last year or so reading a book that was uh, published by Alistair Begg called Brave by Faith, which is the book that we gifted our graduates this morning. I read that, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And I found it to be a very enriching uh, book. And uh, so as I was preparing this message this morning, I tried as hard as I could to come up with uh, three better, you know, uh, bullet points for our text this morning than he did, and I just waved the white flag. So I'm giving credit to Pastor Alistair this morning that the three points that I'm going to give you are actually his. And as we conclude each one of them, I'm going to quote from his book. I'm not spoiling the book for you. There's much more here. But I also want, because, because he has helped me so much, I think I kind of owe it to him to allow him to speak for himself as he offers some concluding thoughts on each of these chapters. So let's get started. Navigating hostile territory, what, what do we learn 
from the lives of these men. Daniel chapter 1 starts by saying this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasuries of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of these youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. As we think upon this first chapter that we'll take a look at this morning, I believe that the, the, the first practical application here as we navigate hostile territory is that we must know our lines. Meaning, when will we say this far and no further? The Bible has a lot to say about living in foreign places. When we come into the family of God, we become, the Bible says, pilgrims and strangers in this world, uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're in this pilgrimage now as foreigners. And as we do that, again, the Bible has much to say about our behavior and conduct, that we should be kind and we should be gracious. We should demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit with all people, not just with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, that we should live reasonably, and as much as it depends upon us, to live at peace with others. All that is true. 
But there are also teachings in God's word that indicate that there are lines we simply must not cross. The trick is we must know which ones those are. And so the first question this morning, graduates and others who are here, where, where are your lines drawn? And why are they drawn there? And I think Daniel and his friends give us some insight onto why was this the line? You know, as we think about what happened to them, they were taken from their home, taken from their families and everything that they knew. Yet there's no record in the text that they resisted this or protested this in any way. Now, perhaps they did, but Daniel didn't see fit to record it here. But one could assume, probably because it didn't happen, based on the conduct that we see them exhibit in the text, it would make sense that they went along. They also were given new names. Now, perhaps you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. The people of Israel were very intentional about the names of their children. Names for, he, for the Hebrews meant something, and they were often tied directly to their faith and their ancestry, and often a, a glimpse into the hopes and dreams that parents had for the kinds of people their children would become. So Daniel means God is judge. Jehovah, Yahweh, God is judge. They took that name from him and called him Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect him. They said, we're going to strip you of your God's name, and we're going to label you with our own. The other three followed suit. Hananiah means God is gracious. He was given the name Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. Mishael means who is like God. Given the name Meshach, which means who is like what Aku is. Azariah meant God helps given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. This would have been insulting to an Israelite. Yet again, there's no record in the text that there was defiance on their part in this matter. Then they were prescribed a new menu. And that is where they drew the line. But did they draw it? Or did God? And maybe that's the difference. Maybe the line had been drawn for them, and they were simply being obedient to it. Leviticus chapter 11 articulates a lot of laws regarding uh, the, the Israelites' diet. And at the beginning, it says, God speaking to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, saying, the, these are living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. What kind of living things are those? Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. And the text goes on, and it says things like, there might be this kind of animal that doesn't part the hoof, but might be cloven-footed and chews the cud, but don't eat it. And there might be other kinds of animals that have the clove, that's cloven-footed, but the hoof isn't parted, and they might chew the cud, but don't eat that. There might be animals that chew the cud, that's great, but they don't satisfy the first two criteria, don't eat it. You follow? The whole text is like that. Then, it, then he goes to water animals, and then insects. Eat this, don't eat that. Eat this, don't eat that. Daniel and his friends understood this. What they understood is, you can take us from our homes, you can give us new names, 
we will not violate God's law. Do you see it? It's in the law. This is the line. And that's the line that they obeyed. You also get the sense that when Daniel took it upon himself to speak on behalf of the others, that he did so with the utmost respect. Again, not with a defiant tone, a rebellious attitude, but actually in the form of a request. Please, can we not eat this food? And when his first attempt failed, he went to the other person that might be able to satisfy the request, and then he was clever. Okay, we understand. At the end of three years, it could be problematic. If we're far worse off than the others, the king's going to have your head. Give us 10 days and let's just see what happens after that. The guy's probably thinking, what's 10 days to three years? Sure, let's try it out. And then we see what happens. And I think, again, there's a template there. When we must obey a line that God has drawn, how we do that matters. How we obey that line matters. The words we use, the attitude we demonstrate. And they give us a great example of that. It's not enough to say, well, God said it, I won't do it, and then treat that person in an unbiblical way. These men knew that they were still their superiors. They knew what Paul talks about, that God establishes all human authority. They knew, did you miss it, by the way, in verse 2, who, uh, who gave the Israelites into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Say it. God. And I think that's the first of three times where some key words are used. In chapter 1, key words, and God gave. They knew that this was of God's sovereign providence, that they should be where they are, that they were under Nebuchadnezzar's kingship only because that's where God brought them. I wonder if we've become so far removed as God's people from times like these that it's hard for us to imagine that God may purposefully give us the president we didn't vote for. As though something messed up and went awry. If God gave his people Nebuchadnezzar, then I think he's fully capable of giving us the presidents that we've been given. God ordains all authority, and they knew that. God also gave them other things. He gave them favor in the sight of the Babylonian leadership. He gave them knowledge and intelligence. Knowledge being, you know, academic skill. Intelligence in this case meaning good sense. He gave them a role in the kingdom. And he gave them success and prosperity. They knew their lines. And their lines were drawn by God. And they were faithful to be obedient to them. In concluding this chapter, Alistair Begg says the following. We are in Babylon. And God is sovereign even here. Nothing is actually out of control. And nothing is about to get out of control. And to that I say, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. How many times have we found ourselves describing a situation in our culture, in our country, in our world as getting out of control? And when we stop to think about it, that actually contradicts the sovereignty and providence of God. Nothing's out of control. It's just not going the way we'd prefer it to go. 
He says, but given the pushback of 21st century secularism, you and I are going to face challenges. The crisis will come. The moments will arrive when we are called to go with the flow of our culture rather than obedience to our God in the workplace or the sports club or in how we raise our children or what we say from our pulpits and so on. These crises will reveal what is inside of us. Crisis does not create our character. It reveals it. And that's what's happening to these men. He says, don't assume you'll stand firm in those moments. Equally, don't assume you will have to give in. Resolve now. Think through where to draw the lines you will not cross. We will not all necessarily draw all of our lines in the same places. Take the promotion of the transgender agenda in public state-run schools. One Christian teacher will resign before having anything to do with it. Another may stay and seek to teach Christian ethics to those who otherwise may not hear that there is a different view, resigning only if forced herself to promote transgenderism. One may be willing to wear a rainbow lanyard with his ID badge, while another not. One set of Christian parents will not send their children to public school at all. Another will do so, but ensure that they are positively teaching God's design for men and women in the home and give themselves financial margin to homeschool their kids if necessary. The lines may be drawn in different places, but drawn they should be, and crossed they must not be. This is just one terrain on which lines have to be carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully drawn. There are many others. So, know your lines. And know the God who will give you all you need in the situation He has put you into, to enable you to stand firm for Him and say, No. I am not going to give in. Graduates, others who are here, know your lines. And be prepared not to cross them when the test comes, because the test will come. Let's move on to chapter 3. In chapter 3... Daniel records this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then all these government officials gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard all, of the, all the kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all these kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, that's what happened at the end of chapter 1. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve the gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear all the kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you one more chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, in other words, should we perish today, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if we die, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's pause there. What did they know? Their line. Where does it correlate? You shall have no other gods before you. You will not worship idols. We can't cross this one, king. We can't. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Let's pause there. Did it ever strike you that they didn't leave the fire until Nebuchadnezzar gave them permission to? It's just interesting. Verse 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now I know these stories are familiar, but aren't they still amazing? I mean, I'm still wowed by it all. 
So what can we take away from Daniel's friends here? Well, I think it's the second point, which is that we need to obey God despite the consequences. So we need to know our lines, and we need to obey God despite the consequences. When we think about what we just read, their reputation was known, correct? I mean, without the reputation of being faithful to the God of Israel, there would have been no accusation. But they were known to be faithful to the God of Israel, and therefore their faithfulness was used against them. A good question to ask ourselves this morning, is our faithfulness to God so publicly demonstrated that should someone seek to accuse us of that, they would be able to? Could they point to such a thing? Could they make such an accusation? Their faith was demonstrated through an obedience that was both informed and resolute. What I mean by that is they knew the consequences. They knew that obeying God would mean their death. It was an informed obedience, but it was also a resolute one that knowing what the consequences were, they weren't going to budge. And so our obedience must be the same. And that's how we demonstrate our faith. Obedience. Even when it's hard. Even when there's a hefty cost to pay. And even if we know that the outcome will be bad for us, we will obey. I wonder if this is what Peter was thinking of in 1 Peter 4 when he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit and the glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And is that not exactly what these three men have done? What were they accused of? You follow the God of Israel. How dare you? They weren't accused of being dishonest or thievery. They were essentially accused of being a Christian. Guilty as charged, right? And so when the fiery trials come to meet us, will our obedience be the same? Second set of three key words in this chapter, I believe, are he will deliver. Chapter one, and God gave. Chapter 3, he will deliver. And in concluding this chapter, Pastor Alistair addresses the concept of idolatry. Why? Because that's precisely the temptation these, these boys were faced with. Probably young men now. Right? Bow down to this idol. <clears throat> and this is what Alistair has to say about that. It is far easier to identify the idols in other cultures than in our own. There are idols we bow down to, not because we're made to, but because we want to. And those are the very hardest to acknowledge. Take two examples. First, the average Western Christian parent finds it natural to worship the idol of children at the expense of fidelity to God and service of his people. Of course, kids are a good thing. Idols usually are. But they so easily and unnoticeably become a god. It becomes so vitally important that Tommy goes swimming and Zadie has skating and Rochelle does her tutoring. And maybe they won't have time to go to the church youth group. And maybe we won't have time as a family to read the Bible together each day. 
the Word of God and the people of God, they're important, but the greatest commitment is to the kids. When push comes to shove, we worship the image of the perfect family, and the holy God can fit in around that. And we have to take an assessment this morning and ask, is he on to something? It's been said by many, it's certainly not original with me, but a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And it always starts as good things. But ask yourself, what governs my life and who governs my family? Is it the calendar? Is it our list of commitments? Could it even be ministries that we think are honoring to God? We must not be governed by them, but governed only by God. It got me thinking as I was reading this through again. And this is just, I'm going to state this as a personal opinion. But, you know, one of the most famous, one of the, probably one of the greatest political slogans of all time has been recently used in our country. And it doesn't really matter how you feel about the slogan, how you feel about the person or campaign that implemented it. Everyone basically agrees it was one of the greatest ones ever, ever employed. And it was make America great again. There's a part of me that wonders, you know, perhaps greater than making America great again would be making Sunday sacred again. And I wonder how much our country or world would change for the better if all of God's people felt the same way. And the sad truth is that even in, even in some of our own churches, if you're a family who has drawn the line to observe that one day a week and set it aside for God, and that's become a line you won't cross, even in God's church today, you are looked at as odd. Because what's become permissible is to consider our commitment to the local church as something that's based on, well, if, if we can be there, we will be. When did that happen? How did we get here? I long to see this time become so prioritized because it tells the world that we stop our life for the God we serve. Ask yourselves and talk as families. Could somebody bank on finding you at your church on Sunday? Because they know that's a line you'll never cross. He goes on to say this, his second example. The average American Christian finds it natural to worship the idol of politics. We think and pray and speak as though if our guy wins, the kingdom wins. And if he loses, then it's hell. In other words, we treat our favorite for president or our political party as a god. American Christians are used to having a political home, and we have forgotten that this is Babylon. It may be Republican Babylon or Democrat Babylon, right-wing Babylon or left-wing Babylon, but it is Babylon nonetheless. And we have forgotten that the kingdom of God is not of this world. My sense is that the United States, in the United States, most of us worship capitalism. And none of us have any idea what socialism actually is. Neither builds the kingdom of God. As the economist John Kenneth Galbraith once memorably put it, under capitalism, man exploits man, while under socialism, just the reverse is true. 
Now, to mitigate the letters I'll get later, I just want to say that I prefer capitalism to socialism. And I teach about the dangers of the socialist ideology in my Bible class at Delaware Christian School. As preferable as capitalism may be, it must never be our God. Brothers and sisters of Christ, graduates, we have not been called to make capitalists. We have been called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We must never confuse the two. And the list could go on. Is it status? Is it acquisition? Is it our bodies? These are the things our culture worships. And so these are the gods to which we bow without thinking. And that must never be said about us. Let's move on to our final chapter this morning, Daniel chapter 6. The text says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them were three presidents, of whom Daniel was one. So he's become a very high-ranking official. To whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find no ground for complaint or any fault. I mean, this dude wasn't speeding or anything because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Do you see what they picked up on? We can't catch this guy on the laws of our land. He pays his taxes. He doesn't steal from anybody. He's honest. He follows the rules. If we're going to catch him, it has to be in connection with the law of his God. Could the same be said about us? Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and governors agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so they cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Stop there. It's, that phrase is so important because we should not take away from this that a law that Daniel didn't like was passed and so then he decided to protest. He simply continued doing what he had done before. He was faithful to God before the law came down. He's going to be faithful to God after the law came down. You see that? Three times a day. You'll find him at his house. You can, you can set your clock, your watch on it. This is what he was going to do. Then these men, verse 11, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, 
Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. You said 30 days, it has to be 30 days. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast in the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, and nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. I just stop there for a second. Does it strike you as odd that the first thing out of Daniel's mouth wasn't something like, you jerk? What were you thinking? Being so foolish to ever do something, I quit. Consider this my resignation. It's still respect. You see that? Gets the man who ordered him dead. Still respect. Live forever, king. He says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. This was Babylonian law, mind you, not God's law. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Some takeaways as we end our time together. Final point, serve well and stand firm. Know your lines, obey God despite the consequences, and serve well wherever he has you. And then stand firm when the test comes. Observation, once again, his reputation was known. I won't take time to read it, but in Ezekiel 14, God lists Daniel as one of only three men as an example of faithfulness and righteousness. Noah, Daniel, and Job. I want you to take some time, if you're willing, and do a little study work and figure out why those three. What might they have in common? How were their circumstances similar? What were their exchanges with God and their relationship with God? What were they like? It might lead to some interesting places.
But his reputation was known. His faithfulness, like his friends, was used against him. And his decision to pray was an extension of an established habit of prayer. When I think about prayer, in my own life, I've been trying to, to work with the Lord on enhancing my value of it, my priority of it in my life. Alistair says this in his book, Speaking for a moment specifically about the American context, isn't there something wrong with us as a church that we have expended such effort on the absence of prayer in our state-run public schools while being unprepared to acknowledge the absence of prayer in our local churches or to increase our own commitment to praying? It's almost like a smokescreen. If I can make a fuss about the lack of prayer over there, then maybe I can forget about the lack of prayer in my own life or in my own church. Daniel's challenge is an unavoidable one. He still prayed. He just did what he had always done. Is that what you have always done? Will it be? And I, and I ask. It's, it's, it's not so much, you know, we, 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 we have opportunities here to gather with others for prayer. We do. And those are wonderful times that we get to spend together. And sometimes, you know, observations have been made about attendance to these things being rather low. But I think the greater concern here is, is, is not about the, the corporate aspect of our praying together, as valuable as that is. I think the real application here is, are we a praying people? Does prayer have a priority in my life? Is my attendance to a prayer gathering merely an extension of my daily private habit of praying to God as Daniel's was? Or is that the one thing I use to say, I pray? You see the tension? Am I a praying person? Are we a people who pray? The final three words that I think are key in this chapter is, are, are my God sent Chapter 1, and God gave. Chapter 3, God will deliver. Chapter 6, my God sent. Correlation. Who's the hero of the story? God. You know, I, I grew up liking that song, Dare to Be a Daniel. But now I sometimes wonder if he were here while people were singing, if he'd be like, no, no, no. Dare to know the God I knew. Right? That's the challenge. God's the hero. And I think Daniel would agree with that. In concluding this chapter, Alistair says this, that serving well, this is what we're called to do, to be servants of the Lord God. And graduates, do it everywhere. Do it in your job, do it in your home, do it in your community. Serve well. That's what Daniel did. That's, that's why he was so loved by a pagan king. And not just one, but many. Because he did his job well. He says you should not have to walk around your office with a large study Bible tucked under your arm for people to know that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus. You should not need a bunch of bumper stickers declaring your allegiance to Christ. What is far more compelling is to be faithful, to be trustworthy, and to be reliable. To show up when you say you'll show up. To do a full day's job. To finish at the right time. To not steal the pencils. Or massage the expense claims. To help your colleagues even when the help is below your pay grade. To write thank you notes. To be courteous. It's good to be good at your job. It's a significant thing 
to be a man of purity in a dirty world or to be a woman of integrity in a shady world. We are called to do far more than be good workers and to serve our society well, but we are certainly not called to do less. So serve well and stand firm. Matthew 5.16, you heard it referenced before the choir shared their song. That we ought to let our light so shine before men that when they see our good works, they will glorify our Father in heaven. We've seen that happen three times in this book. And that's what it looks like. We seek the welfare of our city. We serve our fellow man with the best of our ability. But we make sure that the lines we draw are God's. And when we come to one and are challenged to cross it, we refuse. This is how we navigate hostile territory. And I think it would be wise for us to learn from the examples of men who actually did that and did it well. God gave them success, and I believe he'll grant us the same if we're faithful to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the day that you've given us, the time we've had to gather in this room with the commissioning of our graduates, a bit of a longer service than we've grown accustomed. But God, we thank you for the time we've had to spend in your word, and we thank you for the life and testimony of these men. But we thank you that they are merely a reflection of your greatness and that you are sovereign and in control over all things, all places, all times, all peoples. And so we gather in this room as a people that for your purposes and your purposes only are living in this time. And God, I pray that you would find us as people who are endeavoring to live in this time in a way that pleases you, in a way that's faithful to your word, in a way that brings you the glory you so rightly deserve. And God, I pray for the graduates we've commissioned today, that they would, they would launch out from here and that they would know their lines, know your word, that they would be prepared to obey you no matter the cost and that they would serve you well and stand firm when the test comes. But God, I pray that they would also know this, that the Daniel we met in chapter 6 started as the Daniel we met in chapter 1. And so they must endeavor to be now who they wish to be 30 years from now. So let them resolve in their hearts as Daniel did in his, that they will live this way according to your word. And may we all, as their brothers and sisters in Christ, encourage them to do that, not only through our words, but through how we live as our own lives as examples for them to look at, learn from, and follow. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.